Okay, everybody will. Wander back in. It's great to see everybody today. How many people forgot about the time change? Stand up, we want to make you feel bad. No, not really. Well, well. We have been um, studying the book of Matthew, and last week we looked at feeding the 5,000, which was very interesting. How many of you here for that last week? How many of you weren't here last week? Come on, fess up. Come on, raise them high. Come on, come on, come on. Welcome. I don't chew people out for not coming to church. I'll explain that uh, in a few minutes. It's part of my message. And it won't make you feel bad. It'll make you feel good. So, um, In the Gospel of Matthew, the phrase kingdom of heaven predominantly, but also kingdom of God. Between the two, they show up um, at least 50 times. So you would figure it would be important, and it is important. And um, let's read this first verse together. Why don't you stand up? It won't take you long to do this. We just have two, two different portions that we'll read before this is over. Let's read this together. Do not fear, little flock. For it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Do not fear, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Okay, you can, you can be seated. As I mentioned, that phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven appears over 50 times in the book of Matthew. So it has to be important. And, um, When you consider the gospel, the gospel really is not the gospel of salvation. It's basically the gospel of the kingdom, which obviously incorporates and involves salvation. But um, John the Baptist began by preaching repentance, to repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so it's interesting to me that word repentance. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to get in too, too involved in it here this morning. I will maybe in a couple of weeks when I do a part two, but the idea of repentance is twofold. It's turning from and turning to. In other words, it's not just turning from sin, but it's turning from sin towards God and this good news. And, um, so when we, when we began this study in the Gospel of Matthew, it's, it's so interesting that I can remember back in college, um, I began to see the importance of the difference between the Gospel of personal salvation and the Gospel of the kingdom. And it's like when you see things like that, your eyes are open, you just start seeing it everywhere. But, uh, there was one, one 
young lady who warned me and said her father, who happened to be a Presbyterian preacher, said, you don't don't listen to these people that preach the kingdom. That's a bad message. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. It's the message, the gospel of the kingdom. John the Baptist started it. Jesus enlarged it in ways we could not possibly cover this morning. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul himself preached the gospel of the kingdom. So when you start looking at the Gospel of Matthew, um, we essentially began to look at the Sermon on the Mount. And um, the Sermon on the Mount begins with, Blessed are the poor in spirit. How many of you remember this? Let's say that together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. And... What Jesus is doing here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he's describing life from his perspective as it relates to the kingdom he came to both reveal and proclaim. So Jesus begins by telling us who is blessed or who, who, those who are happy. And that word blessed actually means it's, it's more, much more expansive than just I hope you get blessed or, you know. It really means great happiness, prosperity, delight, or abundant goodness. And so Jesus says, blessed, that level of happiness can the poor of spirit have because for them the kingdom of God is available to them. And so when you look at the, they're called the Beatitudes, the blesseds are, they're called the Beatitudes. Um, well, it tells us who should be that happy or who has availability to that kind of happiness. And it's not quite the way we think in the natural, but that's Jesus' point. The way we naturally think doesn't work that well. How many of you are aware when you were born and grew up, you had no idea what you were doing? Yeah, those of you who don't know will know. So Jesus says it. Oh, that's sort of negative. But you understand what I'm, 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 I'm saying. Um, we don't really know how to live. There are things we really need to learn. And so Jesus came with this revolutionary message called the gospel of the kingdom. And so here's who he says is eligible for great happiness, prosperity, and delight, and abundant goodness are the poor in spirit. Say that just with me. Poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the merciful, those who are hungry to be righteous, if you're hungry to be righteous, what would you preclude? You're not. So that's an amazing insight. Jesus says, for those people who aren't righteous but would like to be, there's this availability of something called the kingdom of heaven. The pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for being righteous. And so Jesus tells us that's who the kingdom of heaven is for. And then John Mark had mentioned this because he talked a lot about these portions. I don't want to re-say all he said. I couldn't, but 
We do have that message on our website if you'd like to hear it. But see, after Jesus tells us who is available for the kingdom, and obviously hope he opens the door wide open in an amazing way. It's almost like the worse off you are, the closer you are to this free gift of this kingdom that will make you happy which is a complete reversal of the way, particularly the whole Jewish um, religious system was set up. Revolutionary message. So then Jesus comes and after saying this is who the kingdom is for, or this is who has can have instant access to this kingdom, he then describes us as he sees us. In two ways. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Now it says, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? And then he says, the light of the world. What good is it if you're the light of the world if you keep your light hidden? But Jesus says this to us. Here's who you are. He begins to speak to us how he sees us. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So salt of the earth, what that means is we should season society by the kind of lives we live. That's what salt does. It makes whatever it's put on, at least from a food standpoint, better. How many of you like to put salt on stuff? Have you ever eaten anything that just doesn't have enough salt and you just don't know if you really want that? Yeah, me too. Light of the world. We, is that funny? I don't know. All my good stuff, people don't laugh at. And then the accidental stuff, I'm trying to remember it so I can use it later. Light of the world. <clears throat> we light up the world by the good works we do, which brings glory to God. That's what Jesus says there in Matthew Matthew chapter 5. Now, the interesting thing, if you study that word, good works, it says Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And actually, it's not just um, being a nice person. It's not just being kind and generous. It's also about being supernaturally empowered. You know, one of, one of the ways I would describe our church, we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week. We have a little bit sort of a vision Sunday next week. We're going to talk about where we came from, who we are, and where we're going. But if I would describe our church, somebody said, are you a charismatic church? I said, well, I, no, I don't even like, I don't like the connotations there. But what are we? Are you a non-denominational church? I don't, I don't like the connotations there. What are you? Well, we were sort of an interdenominational, spirit-filled church. That would be the closest I could get to it. And at some point, that's probably going to be a bad definition too. But the idea is we believe in the power of God and the character of God. We believe in what you would classify as the nine gifts of the Spirit and the nine fruit of the Spirit. And see, when Jesus is talking about how he sees us, he sees us as salt, how we can affect society by the kind of lives we live. And if we don't live exemplary lives, that indicates our salt has lost its saltiness. 
So then after the Beatitudes and after the salt of the earth and light of the world comments, Jesus <clears throat> goes into, <clears throat> excuse me, he goes into um, a long discourse to show us how we're supposed to live when we have a kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God orientation. And what that is, is he shows us what salt and light, people that are salt and light should look like. And that's what you find through much of the rest of um, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's the most complete message Jesus ever preached that we have on record. I'm sure he preached other ones, but this is the only one we have on record. But here's what he does. Jesus affirms the importance of being righteous. He enlarges our understanding on what it is to murder people. He says anger without a cause is equal to murder. And the importance of being reconciled to one another. Jesus enlarges the issue of adultery by saying that lusting after someone makes you guilty of adultery. And Jesus affirms the importance of marriage, of keeping your promises, of being a forgiven, a forgiving person, or even loving our enemies. And you know, loving our enemies. How many of you like that idea? Now, that that's, can't be easy. And some people have said Jesus made all of these standards too difficult for, um, for anyone really to, to walk, in, walk in or live out. But I don't, I don't think that's a good way to look at it. I think we can understand how difficult these things are. But I think also Jesus wants to provide us with... Um, what it takes to walk in the reality of all these concepts and ideas he gave us. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly. That's very clear, very obvious. But I don't think we should ignore all those because we think, well, that's an impossible way to live. Because it's not an impossible way to live. It's just an, it's an impossible way to live if you try to do it in your own strength, obviously. But Jesus really came to give us life and life more abundantly. He came to give us a resource the world does not have, which is the power of the Spirit. And he's merciful enough to let us practice and try to do these things without getting thrown out when we don't do them well enough. Is that okay? In that whole portion of Scripture, Jesus teaches us to be generous, but not to do it for outward approval, um, but to lay up treasure in heaven. He wants us to determine to serve God and not money. Man, talk about money in church. See who puckers up. Now, see, that was funny. <laughs> Except to people who pucker up, I guess. No, come on. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm in closing. No, I'm, this is good, Robin. He teaches us to trust God to the degree that we allow no anxiety in our hearts and lives to not be judgmental because it's too personally expensive, to be persistent in our petitions to live fruitful lives 
to love our enemies, to be perfect as God is, to not take the easy way out, to follow the golden rule, to hear and apply his teachings so that the house of our lives might be built on a rock and not the faulty foundation of the sand. And so that's sort of a general synopsis of um, the Beatitudes and a lot of the concepts and ideas and viewpoint that Jesus has about what it is to live as a person in the kingdom. So this whole idea of being blessed, we see in the Beatitudes. I want to jump back to that a second. The people Jesus described basically have nothing or no one they can trust but God. I mean, he really does describe people in pretty bad shape. In some ways, poor in spirit, mourning, hungry for righteousness, all of those different things. That, that is not um, describing a person who has it all together, would you say? No, not at all. That's a person in trouble. That's a person who's dealing with life and not being successful. How many of you ever been unsuccessful dealing with life? Yeah, come on. I, I know you wanted to raise your hand about that. So Jesus describes these people and basically their only hope is if they can trust God. And Jesus assures them if they do, he will bless them beyond belief. But the blessing is based on God's goodness, not their worthiness, or their ability to obtain his blessing. The implication is that, for instance, the poor in spirit have one remedy, trusting in God. Now, here's the problem with trusting God. Nobody wants to do it. Let me explain that further. Here's the problem with trusting God. Nobody wants to do it. I had to recognize back in the um, early 70s, I was developing a theology that excluded trusting God. But that's the primary basis for our relationship is trust. We trust God. We believe God. Actually, when we talk about biblical faith, it's more, more akin to trust um, than it is to some kind, some kind of a feeling or an emotion. Now, here's the interesting thing. This same concept that Jesus understood is expressed here in Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Let's read this together. What's that first word? Ho. Why would somebody say ho? Not in the vernacular of the current expression, but um, no, um, there's another verse that explains this too. Um, you're not paying attention or you're, you're thinking's wrong. And so this word is the word that says, hey, you really need to consider this because it's not the way you think. So ho, everyone who thirsts, do what? Come to the waters. 
And you who have what? Come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And the Amplified says simply accepting it as a gift from God. You know, I think we, we have made things too complicated. What was the first verse we read this, uh, this morning? It's the Father's good pleasure to do what? Sell you the kingdom. No, he wants to give it to you. The trouble is a lot of people don't believe they need this kingdom, but we all do. We need God. We really do. Matter of fact, I might talk about this a little bit. One of the common characteristics of life is sorrow. It's heartache. It's tribulation. Jesus never promised us to have a tribulation-free life. He did say this, in the world you shall have trouble or tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And the concept is the world is what it is. You're going to have trouble. The kind of trouble we want to avoid, this is sort of ridiculous statement. We want to avoid avoidable trouble. But there's some trouble that's unavoidable and it's inexplicable. And you are in it before you thought maybe you could escape it. What are you going to do now? See, that that's, you know, what are you going to do now? You can't, there's some things you just can't get out of. I can remember, um, well, I'm not going to tell that story. But, okay, I had a, I had a boss um, right after I got out of college, and his wife, I, I was friends with her family, and I worked for him. But she was telling me one day, um, she was going to have her her first child and she was in the delivery room and she began to hurt and she said i'm not doing this she said that's the first time in her life she had ever found herself in something painful she could not change escape or run away from but, but see, that's a, that's a major lesson in life. There's some things we can't run away from. There's some things we're not going to escape. It's just the nature of existence. Blame it on who you want to, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who you blame it on. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to navigate? And so Jesus' gospel of the kingdom has solutions. One thing is this, he will bless anybody who trusts him and he will pour into you wine, water, food. You just can't buy it. You can't earn it. You have to come broke. You have to come poor. And the problem is you are poor. You just don't know how poor you are until your number comes up and you realize how ill-equipped you might be to live. How many of you are with me? Come on. This is really good. This is important. And so then the Lord says, um, 
Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. What is he saying? You need to change your perspective. You need to change the way you think because Jesus did not come to give us a body of things to adopt as policy. He didn't come saying, basically, there are things he said we should think, but basically Jesus came to say, you need to think differently about life. You need to learn a new perspective, a new way to live. And if you will listen carefully to me, I will show you how that life works. That's what he's saying. He's saying, why do you, why do you spend money for, for, for what's not working? Why do you go after that which has been proven for thousands of years doesn't really work? When what you can do is you can cultivate a relationship with me and I can begin to reveal to you through your humility, through your understanding of how much you really need me, I can begin to speak to you and guide you. I can give you wisdom and wisdom is basically how to live life successfully. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Okay. Now, as I was thinking through what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is to me, I I came up with a whole list of statements I want to make. Some of them I might defend or enlarge on others. Um, I may not, but I've been thinking about this, um, for a long time. And I have realized I would, if I had not adopted certain kingdom concepts, I was not going to make it. I was not going to make it in life. But here's some of them. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of power and a kingdom of character. It's not either or, it's both. The kingdom of heaven requires a new way of thinking. Jesus doesn't tell us what to think as much as he teaches us how to think. How many of you like that? That's why we need to know Jesus. He provides us with a revolutionary viewpoint of life and how to live it. That's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The kingdom is based on trusting God and not trusting ourselves. Actually, the prophet Jeremiah says, Blessed is the man who trusts the Lord, for he should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, whose leaves shall not fail, even during a time of drought. But cursed is the man who does not trust the Lord, for he shall be like a tumbleweed or a heath in the desert and will not see when good comes. It doesn't mean good won't come, but when you're not trusting God, if you don't have that as something you are working on, good will come, but you are not in a place to recognize it. And that is a very frightening idea that we can say God has not helped us when in actual reality he has offered us help, but the attitude of our heart has blinded us to what he offers. 
That's how important it is to trust God. Because God never does anything wrong. We think he does. Because we're a little bit better God than he is, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I had a guy come to me one time and he said, God lied to him. And I said, yeah, man, don't bring that stuff around here. I said, I can't afford. Why would I want to believe that? Why would I want to believe that God lied to you? That's ridiculous. No, there's some things I have as bedrock. One of them is God is never wrong. He's never wrong. If I think he's wrong, it just shows you how dark my heart is. I have to deal with that. I have to deal with that. Now, the kingdom is based on trusting God, not ourselves. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. That's a great verse. Let God be true. There's a time in your life where you don't think God's righteous or faithful, but you have to adopt a place of humility because you don't realize through your pain, perhaps, you're not accurately seeing God as he is. You have to trust God. It's so important. The kingdom is a kingdom where anxiety can become a teacher or an alarm clock that tells us when we're not thinking accurately or when our belief structure is inaccurate. I believe that's what anxiety really is. I believe anxiety is a consequence and not a cause. It's a consequence of having an inaccurate belief structure. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. That's another one of my bedrocks. If I'm anxious, there's something I am accepting as true and real and factual and actual, which is in case not. It tells me I'm out with reality. That's what anxiety does for me. That's how it helps me. It's an alarm clock. Wake up. You're believing something inaccurately. It's a kingdom where complaint is an enemy and an access point for depression. It's a kingdom where praise and thanksgiving are powerful, powerful weapons. It's a kingdom where we don't hoard, H-O-R-D-E, hoard to have, but we give to receive and access unlimited provision. It's a kingdom where we advance, not through self-promotion and political alliances, but through honoring others, through appreciation. One of the, one of the challenges among creative people, particularly, I, I don't know, I say particularly, but in the arts or music or in all those areas is this inclination towards jealousy. But see, what jealousy actually does is jealousy cuts you off from your creative process. You see, when you see someone doing something you want to do, or when you see someone doing something better than you can do it, you need to honor that, rejoice in that, acknowledge that. And what often happens is that same level of creativity will be released to you. But if you're jealous... That begins to cut off the very flow of life God has for you. Does that make sense? So important to appreciate. See, those of you that aspire to be good preachers should appreciate 
how good I'm preaching this morning. <laughs> or how appropriate, you know, you, you who are very interested in having good taste and looking fine in clothes should rejoice in my, in my style. If you have criticized me, it's, you're just going to wind up buying an ugly shirt. It's really pretty. Come on. Plaid shirts on big guys make them look like blimps though. I'm pretty convinced of that, but nevertheless, I humbled myself and wore it. The kingdom is a kingdom that recognizes though life is hard and suffering is an unavoidable part of our experience, we have resources and concepts that enable us to overcome every problem and every sorrow. And a a lot of those resources are each other, not just thought processes, although that's, that's very important. The kingdom is a kingdom of authenticity and truth where honesty and humility are essential attitudes that enable us to make progress even in light of our sinfulness and weaknesses. What does that mean? Man, tell yourself the truth. Really, you want to say tell other people the truth, but that's not so important. Tell yourself. You know, the human condition... Um, you have to be honest about who you are. Do you know hiding things about yourself actually opens you up to deception? Always putting your best foot forward can actually hurt you. What do I mean? Well, if, if you, you have to have people you can be honest with. I don't mean you go tell everybody your business. You know, that can work against you. But you have to have a place where you can just be who you are, that, that people can challenge you in, in, a, in a good way. I was, one of the things I've been listening to some of Jordan Peterson's comments, and he was saying, you don't know how crazy people are or how crazy ideas are unless you can have free discourse, unless you can really talk. You can find people you can really talk to because... Truth is not discovered in a vacuum. It's, to, it's discovered more readily in relationship with people. I like that. Okay. It's a kingdom where we live from a place of God's acceptance and love, not one where we struggle to gain God's acceptance and love. That's so important. It's a kingdom that presupposes our lack and weakness will not restrict God's generosity and help to flow into our lives. Now, we tell a little story and we'll tie this up. I don't know, over 25 years ago, um, I had come out of business into ministry, but I didn't have a ministry to come into, but it's a long story. I had a call for a number of years, and the Lord basically told me this is the time. And so I stepped out of my job to try to develop this ministry. The only problem was I had a wife and four kids. And through the process, 
the Lord told me I was supposed to pastor a, this, a church a friend of mine had. And I said to the Lord, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say anything to him about that. That's, that's not good. I said, you go tell him. I'm not, I'm not talking to him about it. And so within a week or two, he came to me and he said, um, I want to talk to you. And I went, okay. And he said, I want you to pastor this church. He, no, he said, will you pray about pastoring this church? And I said, no. And he said, why? I said, you don't pray about what God's told you to do. He's already told me I'm supposed to do this. I just wasn't ever going to bring it up. Now, the problem was there were people there that didn't like me. And I didn't want to be there. So it was like a marriage made in heaven, you know. <laughs> they didn't like me. I didn't want to be there. Now, the good thing was I had a salary. <laughs> $700 a month. Well, I think our house payment was close to $700 a month, wasn't it? More, less, whatever. But that was not so. Here's here's the story. I'm pastoring a church of people that don't like me and a church I don't want to be in, and I'm making $700 a month whether I needed it or not. So I decided, according to natural wisdom, I needed to travel and preach some to get some offerings other places to supplement my income. So I was up in New York and New Jersey. I had a guy. I, I had taken the church, but every once in a while I would take off and, and um as it happened, um, I was coming home virtually broke from that ministry trip on a train. And if you have ever taken a train from Princeton, New Jersey to Charlotte, man, you stopping at every cow town. It took 12 hours. Well, I had a long time to tell the Lord what he needed to know. <laughs> I said, Lord, if you don't give me better places to preach, I'm not going to make it. He said, if you don't go home and stay, you're not going to make it. Aha. The kingdom has struck. <laughs> he doesn't think the way I think. So I said, well, how am I going to do it? How am I going to make it with this church? I don't want to be there, and some of them don't want me to be there either. That is not conducive to high-level generosity, ladies and gentlemen. Let me just... Uh... So the Lord says, well... Tell people not to give their money if they don't want to. Makes perfect sense. And I said, well, what else should I tell them? <laughs> he said, tell them if they don't want to come to church, not to come. So I'm, I'm thinking this through. Okay. I'm not making it. I'm out here trying to make it. You say I have to go back there to make it. And then you're and so I'm saying, well, you know, help me here. How do I do it? And he says, okay, tell people not to give their money if they don't want to and tell them if they don't want to come to the church, release them and don't come. Then he said, but teach people without pressure principles of generosity and sowing and reaping, but don't pressure them, number one. Then he said, and when people are for some reason coming to your church, 
that don't want to be there, they breed. And they affect other people's dispositions. So that's why I'm not mad when people don't come here. No. What I'm really saying is the kingdom is about true freedom. And if you're not free to leave, if you're bound in some kind of a weird way, you won't get what you're supposed to get anyway. Your heart won't be postured right. And if even when it comes to giving your money, if you give your money because the preachers put a curse on you, read all the verses that scare you if you don't, that's not any good because the real blessing in generosity is when you do it because you want to. You do it because you're buying in to something that you think's of value for you, your family, the community. But not, not because, you know, if giving your money gave you an automatic return, who would have a problem, right? Because I've given and not seen a return sometimes, really. Well, what was I doing it for? Who was I giving it to? Why was I giving it? Now, I do, I do believe that's what that happens, but sometimes it's cast your bread upon the waters and it shall be returned unto you in many days or many weeks or many years. So that's how the Lord began to talk to me about that. Well, everything turned around. Why? Because I began to learn that the way the kingdom works is not the way we naturally think. One of the things I read recently about the Sermon on the Mount, we're just about done here. What is it about the Sermon on the Mount? What's the point? Here's what this one guy said. He said, aim at the highest good you can imagine for everyone. Isn't that a, isn't that a noble idea? Devote yourself to pursuing the very best outcome possible. And since it's good enough for those you love, then pursue that outcome even for your enemies. That's what Jesus was saying. Then do this. Concentrate on living one day at a time and try to tell the truth. That's a great, a great conclusion. But Jesus makes this conclusion that's known as the golden rule. He says, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And that's a powerful statement. Jesus is saying, <clears throat> this is what you should conclude by having devoted yourself to understanding the law and the prophets. Basically, huge portion of the Old Testament. That in everything you do, be careful to treat others in the same way you would want them to treat you. Jesus said, this is the essence of all the teachings of the law and the prophets. Okay, I've got more, but I'll save it for later. Man, that was good.
Raise your hand if you enjoyed that. All right. I really enjoyed that. I love this whole message of the kingdom. You know, and I don't know that anything can ever get too basic. You know, I feel like when you get bored of the basics, it's only because you don't understand how important the basics are, right? I mean, I don't know. I could think of some cool analogies to go along with that. Help yourself. You know, but, well, okay, so I have this friend. He's a, he's a lawyer in New York. He's one of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my whole life. And he was telling me the story about, you know, when he was trying to get through school, paying his bills as a used car salesman, and how his the other guy he worked with was the dumbest guy he'd ever met. But the other guy just was really good at selling cars. And my buddy, who's one of the most brilliant people I've ever met, had struggled selling cars because this other guy, just all his eggs were in one basket, the selling cars basket, right? And so my buddy and all his brilliance, his brilliance didn't help him sell cars because the other guy was just so good at the basics of selling cars that he sold, he outsold my friend constantly, even though he was dumb as a post. No, I mean, is that, I mean, just think about that for a second. It's sometimes you're just, you're so smart that you're stupid. You know what I mean? And a lot of times your life isn't going awesome because you're bored of the things that make your life better. Or maybe it's that the simple things can be too challenging sometimes. You want to move on from that? I don't know. Does that sound dumb? It's actually not dumb. It's not dumb. The people who are... The people who are the best at anything are the people who are really good at doing the most basic things. And then they're able to expand on that. You know? I don't know. <laughs> but I had this thought earlier. I had this thought earlier. Um, as John the Baptist came saying, repent because the kingdom is at hand. Right? And I realized why that statement was significant. I think maybe for the first time is because the Pharisees came saying this, repent so the kingdom of God will return. Repent so the kingdom of God will come. Repent so that everything will come back our way, right? But that wasn't the message of the kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus was repent because the kingdom is here right now. John the Baptist was saying, repent, because the kingdom is right now. Not repent, and if we all repent, then everything's going to change, things are going to go better for us. Now, I will say this, you know, when a lot of people are living right, then like, things go better in a lot of ways, right? So I'm not saying that there isn't goodness to come from a lot of people um, not wanting to kill each other, and you know what I'm saying? Like, there is, there is, Corporate goodness that happens when communities of people live well together. That's true. So I'm not denying that, but I'm saying that wasn't the message. The message was repent, change your mind, change the way you live because the kingdom is available to you right now. And so all this stuff that he was talking about, each individual thing, these are not rain dance items where if you do it, all of a sudden, you know, eventually you do it enough and the kingdom's going to come. But each one of these things that he was talking about is your life gets better the moment you do it. Your life gets better the moment you engage in each one of these individual items. But it does also get better long term. There's another wave of goodness, I believe, that comes from living well over long periods of time. Does that make sense, though? And the reason I think that's important is because it's real easy to get in this mindset of, all the little checklist things you got to do, and we're hoping that somewhere off in the distance this thing is going to happen. When actually, 
Like, you live better when you forgive now. If you could, if you have unforgiveness in your heart, I just as an example, if you forgave right now, your life would be better immediately. And you could have been depressed for two years and you can forgive right now. And the kingdom of God and the goodness of God is going to make your life way better right now. And so I just wanted to come up and say that because I think this message is so important. It's easy to miss because it sounds basic. It's easy to miss how important and life-changing all of this stuff is for us right now, today. Anyway, I probably didn't even need to say all that, but I felt it. So That's good. Well, can we pray? Is that all right? Mm-hmm. Now, why don't we stand up and pray? Hey, Eric, you want to come up here too? And I love just, I love how each of these messages tie in together. And I think about, um, Ray Hollenbach talks about at the end of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that building your house on the rock is putting the words into practice. What I love about the idea of practicing, and if you're good at anything, it's because you practice, you know, practicing the kingdom of God. What I love about this idea of practicing is that you can pick little items that you can work on and you get better on individually. That's how it works with music. That's how it works with sports. That's how it works in most areas of your life. But you can pick forgiveness, right? You don't have to bite the whole thing at once. I think we're sold this whole idea like you get saved, you're going to go to heaven, so eat the whole thing, and you got to be perfect immediately as much as it's a practice. So, Lord, whatever it is, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would coach us this week. Coach us. Last night in the middle of the night, I woke up thinking about how I don't know that I've ever specifically asked the Lord to train me, to disciple me, to mentor me. You know, there are times in my life I really, I've had good mentors in areas of my life, but there's always this one area in my life where I wanted a mentor. You know, I realized the other night, it's like, Jesus can be my mentor. The Holy Spirit can be my mentor, can mentor me in the way of living life. And I don't know why it hit me. I was like, I felt so stupid. I felt so dumb that I've tried to live this whole Christian life and never once asked the Lord to mentor me in the basic ways of living the life. So, Lord Jesus, we do, we ask you. Yeah. We ask you. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna only, only do it if you feel it, you know, so I don't assume to speak for everyone here, Lord, but anyone who is willing, I do, I do ask that you would mentor us. You would grow us in the ways of the kingdom. You would teach us how to forgive. You would teach us how to love. You would teach us how to not be angry. You would teach us how to not be anxious, Lord. And you would teach us in the ways of the fruit and the gifts of the Spirit, Lord Jesus, that you would train us and mentor us in the good daily life. And we thank you so much for the kingdom that you've offered us right now. We thank you so much for the kingdom that we can enter into at this very moment. For the goodness we can enter into in this very moment. You know, and I'm not calling an altar call or anything, but I think maybe there's someone out here who really, um, are you going to say something? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was funny, right before you said altar call. This is, how, let's do an altar call. All right. I bet there's people in here, number one, I bet there's people in here who responded to an altar call when they were younger, when somebody said, how many of you guys want to take Jesus Christ as your personal savior let's do this this morning how many of you guys would like to either a maybe never did what john mark just said last night who said i want jesus to be my mentor how, how many of you just you can raise your hand let's do it like old school how many of you guys would like to say jesus i've never asked jesus christ to be my mentor in living 
and life, and I would like to do that this morning. I'm going to raise my hand. Well, I've actually asked him. But so I'm going to be the second wave, which is this. You've done it before, and maybe you've slipped or you've, you know, life just is daily. I would like to ask you again, Jesus, to be my mentor. How many of you guys would like to sign up for that? Be my mentor. Be our mentor. Teach us in the ways of your kingdom. We just say right now. We repent. We repent. We rethink the ways that we've thought. Life is not what we thought it was. You are what we want to think it it is. Kingdom come. God, your will be done in these lives now as it is in heaven. God, give us today exactly what we need today to eat our daily bread. And forgive us, God, for running lives on our own terms. And help us forgive those who have been ruining our lives on on their own terms. And let the glory and the power come. And I want to say this too. I was feeling this earlier um, before I handed the mic to Eric. Um, And this is kind of a... um, I mean, it's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. Because if you're in a room of five people, four and a half people are dealing with unforgiveness. So, right? But I do feel like... um, there's maybe someone here that's been holding on to some unforgiveness for a long time and you have seen how your life can be different, but you've been afraid or you don't know how to do it. And there's a grace here for you to offer that up and your life can change right now immediately. And you can walk out feeling like a million dollars, a million Jesus dollars, not like this cheap dollars that we have, right? Not that poor money that we deal with here on earth, but the real money. Right? Anyway, if that's you, just raise your hand. It's hard to do it in front of other people, but that's why it matters. But you can let it go. And what they did, it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it okay. And you don't even have to be their friend. You don't have to trust somebody who's abused you. But also, you owe it to Jesus and yourself to not allow their abuse to continue to abuse you by holding on to unforgiveness. But you can literally enter into the kingdom today. You can literally practice a little bit of kingdom at this very moment by letting that thing go. By letting that thing go. And it's not a defeat or admitting a defeat to let it go. It's actually a supreme victory. Can you imagine how powerful a person you must be to allow that kind of thing to go away? What, how powerful do you have to be to love your enemies? That's some real power. That's a powerful person. That's a huge person. That's a big person. To love your enemies is very big. 
and very powerful. To forgive is very, very powerful. And you are a powerful person. In Jesus' name, we do. We hand it. We hand it over. We give it up. And we do. Think of that person specifically. That person specifically. We do forgive that person. We do forgive that person. And we release that person. We are powerful enough by the grace that you've given us. We are powerful enough to release that person today and to send them off with a blessing. In the name of Jesus, amen.